Hi, folks. This is Andrew Stelzer. If you get our program through iTunes, please go there and rate us so that other people can find the show. And if you're on our website, radioproject.org, please click on the Donate button so that you can support this work and help us keep making great shows like this one. All right. Thanks. Here's the show. I'm George Lavender, and this is Making Contact. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. It's one of the most famous speeches of all time, and it nearly didn't happen. Wyatt T. Walker says to King, don't do the I have a dream thing. It's trite, it's a cliche, you've used it too many times before. But on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. ignored that advice. In front of what was then the largest civil rights demonstration the Capitol had ever seen, he did the I have a dream thing. Black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. On this edition of Making Contact, Gary Young talks about his book, The Speech, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Dream and the Story Behind It. This, the book is called The Speech and it's about King's uh, uh, famous speech at the March on Washington. And if left there is an idea, then you have a great man and a great talk. But King could not do that on its own. The speech and the march came from somewhere. Uh, and um, I want to start by giving some context to that text. Because in the absence of that, there would have been no march and there would have been no speech. So I start with some of the people whose names perhaps we don't know, but who paid for that speech in a, in a range of ways. Um, and I begin with Franklin McCain, who uh, was a 17-year-old in Greensboro, North Carolina, who made his stand by taking his seat at the Woolworths uh, downtown on February the 1st, uh, 1960. When I interviewed Franklin McCain, he, he said that up until that time, as a, a young man in North Carolina, he felt that his life was worthless and that his parents had lied to him. And the lie that they told him was a great American lie that you can be anything you want to be. And he said, as he grew through adolescence, he knew that wasn't true. As a 17-year-old black male in North Carolina, he knew that that wasn't true. And just as a symbol of how untrue that was, a completely different story that I was doing, several years later, I interviewed um, a guy called Buford Posey uh, from Mississippi, a white guy who became an anti-racist, who told me, quite kind of matter-of-factly, he said, I never knew that it was illegal to kill a black man until I joined the army. He said, um, until that time, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know it was illegal, and true enough, in Mississippi, the people who were as likely as not to be killing black people were actually the law enforcement agencies. So it was 
not uh, an entirely incredible thing for him to think. So we go back to Franklin McCain. He knows this as well as Buford Posey does. And he says he was angry at his parents for this lie. And so they sat up, him and his friends, late into the night, January the 31st, talking about how everybody had failed them before they talked themselves into the action that they took the following day, not knowing when they showed up at Woolworths in Greensboro whether any of the others would be there. He says, we wanted to go beyond what our parents had done, and the worst thing that could happen was that the Klan could kill us. But I had no concern for my personal safety. The day I sat at that counter, I had the most tremendous feeling of elation and celebration. I felt that in this life, nothing else mattered. If there's a heaven, I got there for a few minutes. I just felt you can't touch me. You can't hurt me. There's no other experience like it, not even the birth of my first child. A few years later, in May 63, in Birmingham, Alabama, a burly white police officer attempted to intimidate some black school children to keep them from joining the growing anti-segregation protests. They assured him they knew what they were doing, ignored his entreaties, and continued their march toward Kelly Ingram Park, where they were arrested. A reporter asked one of them her age. Six, she said, as she climbed into the paddy wagon. The following month in Mississippi, stalwart civil rights campaigner Fannie Lou Hamer overheard Anel Ponder, a fellow activist, being beaten in jail in an adjacent cell. Can you say yes, sir, nigger? Can you say yes, sir, the policeman demanded? Yes, I can, replied Ponder. So say it. I don't know you well enough, said Ponder. And then Hamer heard her head hit the floor again. The Polish journalist Ryszard Kapuscinski once wrote, all books about all revolutions begin with a chapter that describes the decay of tottering authority or the misery and sufferings of the people. But they should begin with a psychological chapter, one that shows how a harassed, terrified man suddenly breaks his terror and stops being afraid. This unusual process demands illuminating. Man gets rid of fear and feels free. The period preceding King's speech at the March on Washington was one such chapter. Until that point, there had, of course, been many fearless acts by anti-racist protesters. But in that moment, the number who were prepared to commit them reached a critical mass. In May 63, the New York Times published more stories about civil rights in two weeks than it had in the previous two years. During the 10-week period following Kennedy's address on civil rights in June that year, there were 758 demonstrations in 186 cities, resulting in 14,733 arrests. Such were the conditions that made the March on Washington possible and King's speech so resonant. And this context was global. Two days after McCain made his protest in Greensboro, the British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan addressed the South African Parliament in Cape Town with an ominous warning. The wind of change is blowing through this continent. And whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. Some, including his immediate audience and apartheid parliament, didn't like it at all. But as the decade wore on, that wind became a gale. In the three years between Macmillan's speech and the march on Washington, the following countries became independent. Togo, Mali, Senegal, Zaire, Somalia, Benin, Niger, Burkina Faso, Côte d'Ivoire, Chad, Central African Republic, Congo, Gabon, Nigeria, Mauritania, Sierra Leone, Tanganyika, and Jamaica. Internationally, non-racial democracy and the black enfranchisement that came with it were the order of the day. The longer America practiced legal segregation, the more it looked like a slum on the wrong side of history than a shining city 
on the hill. Now, the story of that year in particular is the story of the base, the masses, the grassroots continually running ahead of the leadership. King spoke in Harlem just a few months before the march and was heckled by protesters shouting, we want Malcolm. When the NAACP hold their conference in Chicago, they invite Mayor Daley to give introductory remarks and he is heckled from the floor. When their leaders go to speak to Kennedy about holding the march, Kennedy says to them, we have legislation that's currently going through Congress. We, we would rather have new laws than have the Negroes out on the streets. And A. Philip Randolph, the socialist and trade union organizer who's primarily responsible for calling the march, tells Kennedy, the Negroes are already in the streets, Mr. President, and I doubt if you called them that they would come back. That is the mood of the moment, that the, um, the patience has worn out, the forbearance, the uh, ability to withstand the clubs and the hoses, hoses that can fire so strong they can knock the bark off a tree at 30 feet being fired at children and dogs, has become too much. And so African Americans, who are always fighting back, start to resist like with like. In Birmingham, there is, um, eventually, they respond to the bombings uh, of the Klan with violence. And there's a fear, both among the civil rights leadership and among the Kennedy administration, that black people will resist and will meet like with like. That is the mood that creates a necessity for a march, which is called at the beginning of the year, but very few people want. The polls show that most, uh, most Americans don't want it, and particularly most white Americans don't want it. Kennedy doesn't want it. Um, it's uh, insufficiently radical for many of the youth and too radical for many of the more conservative leadership. But by the time it happens, there is a sense that uh, if they don't do this, then what are they gonna do to channel this frustration, uh, this mass frustration? And so the march happens. Now the key fear, primarily of the state, is that there will be violence. This is peculiar because most of the violence in the South has come from the white segregationists, not from African Americans. But nonetheless, the fear is that there will be violence, and so it is literally policed as a military operation. It's called Operation Steep Hill. 82nd Airborne, ready to fly up from North Carolina at a moment's notice and drop 19,000 troops on DC. 1,000 uh, uh, troops in DC uh, deployed, 6,000 police, uh, working, all leave cancelled, all elective surgery cancelled, baseball game cancelled, alcoholic sales um, are made illegal, and even on the mic, the mic that King speaks from, there is a kill switch that the Justice Department put in surreptitiously. The idea is that if anybody calls for insurrection from the stage, that they will flip the switch and play Mahalia Jackson singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. That's their response. And so, it is uh, into that, um, into that uh, atmosphere that King plans uh, his address. Now, King gave around 350 speeches that year. So if you take time off for high days and holidays, that's about a speech a day. And generally, he's not giving a bespoke speech. He's an African-American Baptist preacher, and in that tradition, he drafts his sermon, but then he crafts it in response to how the audience 
is taking to what he's saying. And he has a number of uh, 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 arsenal, a, a, a kind of a series of weapons that he can use, rhetorical uh, weapons. And, but the difference is that this speech, unlike other speeches, is going to be televised. If you were in the black church or the civil rights movement, you'd heard King speak before. But if you weren't, this was your oratorical, his oratorical introduction to the nation. Kennedy had never heard him give a speech before. And at the end of the speech, he turns to one of his aides in the Oval Office and says, damn, he's good. Um, and so King and his team want something that is going to be on a par with Gettysburg. Now, we know a lot of these details because the FBI were kind enough to record them uh, for us. He wants something on a par with Gettysburg. And so his... Uh, one of his main aides, Wyatt T. Walker, says to King, don't do the I have a dream thing. It's trite. It's a cliche. You've used it too many times before. Uh, and that's the first line of the book. And indeed, King had used it many times before. He first recorded using of it was in 62. It's thought that he probably used it in 61. That's a couple of years before. He'd used it in June uh, at a rally in Detroit. And even a week earlier at a fundraiser for black insurance executives in Chicago. So this was not the first time that, by a long stretch, that he had used the I Have a Dream refrain. And King worries away at this speech. He seeks counsel. He has a lot of input, much more than he would generally. And what we know is that when he goes to bed at 4 o'clock in the morning, the morning of the march, I Have a Dream is not in the text of the speech that we know. Uh, and according to Clarence Jones, his lawyer and uh, his speechwriter, it was not in King's mind to, to do that uh, uh, the next day. So the next day, there is a, a series of meetings they have with Congress. There's a funny kind of moment at the beginning of the day where um, they're in meeting Congress and they come out and the march has started without them, very symbolically given what I've said earlier. Bayard Rustin, the uh, gay, out-gay, ex-communist, uh, conscientious objector, and that's before you get to the fact that he's black. He's the organizer of this march, and he runs out of Congress, sees the march leaving, and says, we are supposed to be leading them. They jump into their limousines and try to catch up with the march, but are blocked by the traffic, the traffic caused by the march that they themselves have called. And so they jump out of the, uh, of the limousines, and they run to catch up with the march. And if you look at pictures of the leaders of the march, in a kind of Fred Flintstone version of photoshopping, what they did was basically just clear people out of the way so it looks as though they are at the front of the march, but actually they're in the middle. And throughout that day, King is worrying away at this text, scrawling all over it. If you look at the actual, what he ends up with, you know, what's left on the podium when he finishes speaking, there's, there's a, a, it's full of doodles and scrawls and so on. You're listening to Gary Young, author of The Speech on Making Contact. Special thanks to The New School for use of their recording. To find out more about the show or to download past episodes, go to radioproject.org. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at making underscore contact. Up next, Gary Young explains what had to happen to turn Martin Luther King Jr. from an unpopular figure at the time of his death to the widely praised icon we know today. And I can tell from your applause he needs no further introduction. 
Mr. Bob Dylan. It was a hot day, 87 degrees at noon, and King is the 16th on a uh, agenda of 80. He's a 10th speaker. There's been the anthem, the invocation, the prayer. There have been a range of uh, a number of singers, including Mahalia Jackson, Peter, Paul and Mary, Bob Dylan. A range of people have sung. And he, he, uh, he takes to the podium uh, about 2.30. At this time, I have the honor to present to you the moral leader of our nation. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R. And um, according to Clarence Jones, who uh, drafted much of the text, King keeps closer to this text than he would regularly keep. I am happy to join with you today. Um, those who wrote speeches for King said they were always King's speeches basically but you would be in Clarence Jones's words like a very crude architect you would set up the four walls and then King like a beautiful interior designer would come and he would make it his own and King speaks very faithfully to uh, the main text five score years ago a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But then as, uh, and if you listen to the speech, um, and I would advise you to listen to it, it's the most popular, least well-known speech I've heard of. When I told my brother I was doing uh, this book, he said, I love that speech, it's such a great speech. You know, that thing about I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land, and I said, it's a great speech, but it's not that speech. And um, uh, he's winding up. He says, go back to Mississippi, go back to Louisiana, go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us Behind him is sitting Mahalia Jackson, a very, very close and special friend. When King was on the road, he would often call Mahalia Jackson for what they termed gospel therapy. He would call her and he would ask her to sing to him down the phone to soothe his spirit when he was down. And so he knew her well, he knew her voice well. And she shouts, tell him about the dream, man. Tell him about the dream. She had heard him deliver the dream segment in June in Detroit. King continues. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. And then she shouts again, tell us about the dream, Martin. Tell us about the dream. I say to you today, my friend. And then, in the words of Clarence Jones, King puts his text to the left of the podium. And in his body language, changes from a lecturer to a preacher. And Jones turns to the person next to him and says, those people don't know him, but they're about to go to church. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. At which point, Wyatt T. Walker, the man who advised him not to do that, who's in the crowd, turns to the person next to him and says, oh, sh he's doing the dream. So, um, that's how we got there. And what's interesting 
is that when you ask people who were there at the time and who knew King well, to a person, they will tell you that they did not, of all the speeches that he made, this was not particularly one that they thought we would be talking about in 50 years' time. It was a great speech that none of them, you know, deny that. But many of them have different speeches that they thought uh, were better. And either way, they said great speeches was what King did. And so I spend a fair amount of time in the book looking at why that is. And I want to kind of really suggest two things here. The first is that there is something for pretty much everybody in this speech. If you are an African-American, part of a community who's told that you are genetically stupid, that you're poor because you're stupid, that your stupidity is your responsibility, and that your, uh, the, the failings in your community have nothing to do with history and everything to do with you, then to know that the best speech, America's favorite speech, was delivered by an African-American in the black vernacular as an indictment of American racism is something to be very proud of. If you are a patriot, there is nothing in this speech that you need worry about. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. Literally and metaphorically delivered in the shadow dream. of Lincoln that pays homage to the founding fathers, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. It's an American speech. Couldn't have come from anywhere else. If you are progressive, this speech comes on this day. There have been few days like this for American progressives. Fair enough, only 20% of the crowd was white, which was less than what they were expecting. But nonetheless, this was the first march of its kind in Washington. Now, marches in Washington are two to a penny, but this mass demonstration, they hoped for 100,000, they got 250,000. Never been, uh, had never been done before. And it comes, and this is the way I describe it in, in the book, it is the most eloquent articulation of the last great moral act that America can claim for which there is any consensus, and that is the end of American apartheid that um, whatever people say now or feel able to say, nobody who wants to be take serious, taken seriously is calling for those signs to go back up. Nobody is calling for a return to formal codified segregation. And however small that may seem when we see the amount of racism that can still spew from the mouths of those who are elected or unelected, that is no small thing. The end of apartheid is a big thing. And it's, um, I, I believe it's the last great moral thing that America can really claim to have done as a country. So there is that. That num a number of people have something to claim, but there's also something else. King, when he delivers that speech, there is an even number of Americans with a favorable and unfavorable view of him. By 66, twice as many Americans have an unfavorable view than a favorable view. By, and then he's dead in 68, assassinated. By 1999, when Americans are polled on who are their favorite characters of the 20, 20th century, King comes second only to Mother Teresa. So something happens between when he is assassinated as a somewhat marginal and polarized figure and 1999. And this is what I think has happened. First of all, why does he become unpopular? Well, when the speech is delivered. The year after comes the Civil Rights Act. The year after that comes the Voting Rights Act. Legislation begins to kick in. And King understands that the end of segregation is not the same as the beginning of equality. As he says, 
I have given people, we have won the right to eat in any restaurant of our choice, but we do not have the ability to eat everything that's on the menu because we can't afford it. There are 40 million poor people here. One day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society we are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. And you see, my friends, when you deal with this, you began to ask the question, who owns the oil? You began to ask the question, who owns the iron oil? You began to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? Now that kind of talk in America in 1967 will get you killed. And sure enough, a year later, he is killed. So he starts talking about capitalism. Year after that, in 67, he starts at the Riverside Church. He calls America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And takes a stand against the Vietnam War. Now, how is America then going to remember King? Well, it can't remember him if it's going to raise him to iconic status. If it's going to put him on the mall, then it has to sanitize him for public consumption. It has to make him the kind of person who could come second to Mother Teresa. And you can't do that with a man in America who questions capitalism. Because to remember King in that way would not raise him above the fray, it would enter him into it. You can't remember King as a man who criticized capitalism and still hold him up as an American uh, icon. That doesn't work unless what it takes to be an American icon changes. You can't remember him, America can't remember him, the powers that be, as the man who called America the greatest purveyor of military violence in the world today, because arguably it still is. And it was notable on the 50th anniversary of the speech. It took place literally on a split screen. And on one screen, there was Obama, Clinton, Carter, carrying King's mantle, cloaking themselves in his legacy. And on the other screen, will we bomb Syria? When will we bomb Syria? Why wouldn't we bomb Syria? You can't remember King as that, have him on the mall, and still claim him to be an American icon when he's speaking about America being the greatest purveyor of military violence. But you can remember him as a man who got rid of American apartheid. Not American racism, because that would involve a whole different set of conversations about why black men in DC have a lower life expectancy rate than men on the Gaza Strip. You can't have that conversation, but you can have the conversation about why or how he got rid of uh, American uh, apartheid. Uh, and so that's the way that they choose to remember him. And so I, I, I end with just one paragraph where I talk about the process by which King and through him the speech 
can be sanitized. And they say white America, most of it, came to embrace King in the same way that most white South Africans came to accept Nelson Mandela, grudgingly and gratefully, retrospectively, selectively, without grace, but with considerable guile. By the time they realized their dislike of him was spent and futile, he'd created a world in which admiring him was in their own self-interest, because, in short, they had no choice. When it comes to King and his speech, one of the central arguments in this book is it's not just about what you remember, it's also about what you forget. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. You've been listening to Gary Young, author of The Speech, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Dream and the Story Behind It, published by Haymarket Books. Special thanks to the new school for use of their recording. To find out more about Making Contact, go to radioproject.org. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Quan Booth, Laura Flynn, Jasmine Lopez, Lisa Rudman, and Andrew Stelzer. I'm George Lavender. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>